Today's power talk is titled Hydrocreted Vegetable Oil, aka HVO, aka Renewable Diesel. It's a conversation with Matt Luke, Technical Manager for Neste. We discuss the economic, chemical, environmental, and practical considerations of HVO. Matt is truly a subject matter expert and was able to answer all our questions in simple terms. Greg and I certainly enjoyed this conversation, and we're sure you will too. Power Talk is a series of conversations about the changing electric grid, how you can leverage new technologies to increase your reliability and lower your bills, and how you can safeguard yourself. All right, hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Power Talk. Today's talk is going to be focused around hydro-treated vegetable oil, or HBO. Beside me, as always, is Greg Lamberg, coming to this with over 30 years of industry experience. Uh, my name is Nate Woods. I'm coming to this with uh, nearly 20 years at this point of cat dealer marketing experience, and our special guest today is Matt. So, Greg, I see you've got some notes prepared. Do you mind kicking off? Absolutely. Th- thanks, Nate, and uh, glad to be here with everyone doing another uh, episode of Power Talk. We're having a lot of fun with this series, and we encourage you to ask questions, get involved, and Join the conversation. Uh, HVO, hydrofuted vegetable oil, very, very exciting topic. And uh, today we're excited to have Matt Luke with us uh, from Neste to talk about what, what we call HVO, hydrofuted vegetable oil, or RD99, renewable diesel 99. We're going to get into all those different nomenclatures for it, but uh, we just, uh, Peter said we call it HVO. Uh, Matt is the technical manager for Neste's U.S. renewable road transportation business. Matt brings more than 17 years of diesel engine and energy industry experience to Neste and provides technical expertise to engine OEMs like Caterpillar, fuel distributors, customers, and internal teams. Matt began his career as an application engineer and then a technical sales manager at Cummins. We're not going to hold that against you, Matt. Uh, before he moved on to a sales director role at an energy equipment manufacturer. Matt returned to his technical roots and now uses his engine, equipment, and fuel knowledge experience to support Neste's position as the leading edge of cleaner, lower carbon renewable fuels. Matt holds a BS in engineering technology from the Texas Tech University and an MS in global energy management from the University of Colorado. RD99 or HVO as we like to call it, is a 100% renewable drop-in replacement for conventional diesel fuel. Caterpillar gensets are HVO ready. We'll talk a little bit more about that. By switching from conventional diesel fuel to HVO, genset owners can significantly improve their environmental footprint. And we're going to talk about a lot of these uh, aspects and uh, opportunities for our customers today. Nate, I think you did a little bit of homework on Neste. You want to share with our listeners what you found out? Yeah, I got a, I got a fact sheet here. Uh, Neste is the global leading supplier of renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, but that wasn't always the case. Before, Neste was an oil and gas company. Headquartered in Espo, Finland, Neste was founded more than 70 years ago with a defined purpose of providing oil and fuel security to Finland. When they started doing business in the United States, their focus was on collecting crude oil by truck from the Texas oil fields and selling gasoline across the United States West Coast. In the 1990s, climate change was just an inconvenient truth and there was little demand for renewable energy. Despite this, Neste embarked on a journey to become a company that fights climate change. Neste has spent the last 15 years transforming from an oil producer to a renewables pioneer. Neste is helping to forge a clear and profitable path for the oil industry to follow. They seem to be leading the way. They are the global recognized leader in the production of HBO. So Matt, thank you for joining us today. This is an exciting week for Neste in Tacoma. Tell us a little bit about what's going on here and now and 
we've heard sort of the the Peterson description of what Neste is. What's uh what's your description? Yeah, well, first thanks for having me. Um, <clears throat> we're actually in Tacoma this week for the Green Transportation Summit and Expo. So it's one of the one of the larger events on the West Coast. It's been around for years. It helped kind of promote these new technologies, right? Whether it's HVO or you know, there's some battery electric and some hydrogen and other stuff, but the newer generation of transportation out there. Um, so we have a booth, the people come check it out. There's a ride and drive event also. Some of the, the truck dealers and other manufacturers are here using our fuel to help people experience that, you know, it is a drop-in solution. We'll talk about all that. Um, and now there's no change in performance and just help us get the message out. So um, yeah, like you said, we, I guess this is our 75th year as a company, founded in 1948. Um, the technology we'll talk about, we patented this back in the mid to late 90s, kind of the first in the world. Um, started producing it commercially in 2005, and we've since grown to be the largest producer in the world of these renewable fuels. And it's exciting to have OEMs like you guys really helping us carry that message out there and, and get it out to the public. So you're saying that uh, you're showing folks your, your HVO or your renewable diesel in use in trucks at the show. So have these trucks been configured to use your fuel? So the cool thing is, um, it's a drop-in solution, right? You don't have to make any changes. There is no configuring to do. So, you know, the trucks that were brought in for this, they may have had some fossil diesel in the tanks. They really didn't need to drain that out. You can just put this fuel on top because it meets the same standard, this ASTM D975 standard. It's a hydrocarbon. Um, you can blend it at any rate. You may not get all the benefits with a blend as opposed to a neat, you know, renewable product like we're making. Um, yeah, it, it's a, it's a drop-in solution ready to go. And so it sounds it sounds almost like the same fuel, uh, just, just from from a use case. If you put in one of one versus if you put in a gallon of the other, uh, it sounds like you get the same effect. Yeah, for sure. I'm sure we'll dive into some of the there's some performance benefits that come along with it as well. Um, but just from a day to day, you know, I need fuel in my equipment. Easiest thing you can do to get a, an immediate GHG reduction. Nate, uh, Caterpillar did do some testing uh, with, with HVO, yeah. and uh, they produced a white paper for a PowerGen conference. Uh, let's make sure we put a link uh, on this podcast to the uh, Caterpillar white paper. That, that's a very good paper also. Um, I've sent that to quite a few people around the industry. Yeah, Matt's, Matt's just saying that because he wants a cat hat. It's uh, <laughs> very much appreciated you guys. No, actually, it is, it is a good paper. And, you know, everybody these days is focused on sustainability, uh, carbon reductions, uh, decarbonization. And, uh, you know, Peterson Power Systems, we, we sell a lot of diesel generators out there because, you know, the diesel generator is a technology that is not going away anytime soon. Uh, we actually call them compression ignition engines now as opposed to diesel generators because diesel has kind of gotten a, a bad stigma out there. And But the technology, the compression ignition engine, isn't going anywhere. And uh, as our customers look to decarbonize their operations and create more sustainability, um, I, I think uh, this is probably one of the premier options they should consider because it's so easy to just drop it in. Do they have to clean out an existing fuel tank or anything, or you can just drop this in? Drop it in. Um, in a couple things that you talked about there. One, agree that it, it's not going away. You know, we, we talk about certain mar parts of the world or markets being hard to abate segments. You know, it's going to be really hard to convert those over to anything non-fossil. Power generation is one of those, along with other off-road things like rail and agriculture. Um, but power gen, especially, you can't have a battery that then powers a generator. That makes no sense, right? Um, yeah, to your question about cleaning tanks, that, like I said, there's really nothing to do. It is a drop-in solution. Um, 
if you say you had half of a tank of regular fossil diesel and then put in the rest renewable diesel, just keep putting in renewable, or sorry, HVO. Um, and it's, it's over a few tank cycles, you'll be running on, on the pure HVO and getting all the benefits of that. What, what's, what's the availability like? I mean, I know you guys are a global supplier and I know you guys are just ramping up uh, production in the United States, but you produce all over the globe. But from a U.S. perspective, uh, from the research I've done, it shows that you've been kind of crawling up the West Coast. And, you know, for listeners not familiar with Peterson, our service territory is Northern California, Oregon, and Southern Washington. And it sounds like Neste has got the West Coast covered right now. You've kind of went up into Oregon and you're moving into Washington a little bit. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit as far as uh, how easy is this product to get uh, in the United States and specifically on the West Coast? Um, it's definitely become more easier. Um, sorry, more easy. That's bad grammar. More easier. <laughs> more easier, it's, yeah. It's better. So yeah. it's, it's thicker. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, us, Neste being the first in the world, um, you did say we've got production on three continents now. So Finland, where we're based, and then Rotterdam and Singapore. Um, we can talk about the joint venture in California in just a second. But historically, you know, all of our fuel coming to the West Coast was coming by vessel from Singapore. It just makes sense to go straight across the Pacific um, without having to worry about other technicalities in the shipping world. And because California was first to put their, their low carbon fuel standard in place, that was a big driver, a big incentive to bring these renewable fuels into the state. And they have made a huge difference. Um, if you look at statewide right now, the statewide diesel pool, uh, nearly half of that is HVO now after the latest stat that came out from last year. Um, from there, Oregon has put a program in place as well. Their clean fuels program, the CFP. British Columbia was up there also around that time. And Washington has now put a program in place as well. So now we're kind of connecting this West Coast corridor. So it allows us to, you know, very easily bring fuel from our Singapore refinery and via vessel make stops along the coast and put this fuel wherever we need it without having to rely on, you know, rail or pipelines, which is a whole other subject with this fuel, um, or different shipping methods from the Gulf, Gulf Coast around the Panama Canal and things that just are headaches, frankly. Um, you know, we expect kind of the Northeast U.S. to be the next big market, but they don't have a program in place yet. They're, they're trying. It's going to take a few years. So right now, the focus really is the West Coast. And you see a lot of new producers coming online, whether they're exclusively focused on renewable products or some of the big oil majors doing some conversions and trying to, to get in there as well. Um, I, I did mention our joint venture in California. Starting earlier this year, we, we brought that first phase of that online. So Marathon had a, a facility in Martinez, California, Northern Bay Area. We went 50-50 on a JV with them to convert that part of that facility to HVO production. So now what comes out of that, we basically have a split of the output volume. So now we have production on three continents. So when you ask about ease of availability, how to get it, um, you know, I think logistically, if you, if you want it somewhere, we can get it somewhere. Well, that's great news. Let's, let's, let's dig in a little bit and, and talk about, you know, uh, let's, let's take some of the mystery out, out of HVO or, or renewable diesel, my RD99. Um, and, and by the way, just to just to circle back and finish on the last question, uh, if you're with Peterson Power Systems and you're listening to this and you work in San Leandro, right across the street from us, you will see signs that say Nesty, My Renewable Diesel, RD99. You can purchase it right across the street from uh, Peterson Power Systems San Leandro office. It is available through Western States Petroleum. Um, what is HVO uh, produced from and are there, are there different types of HVO? Um, so most HVO is going to be made from waste and residues. You know, our, our goal is to be waste and residues supplied. So we're talking about used cooking oil, 
animal fats, tallow and things, maybe some technical corn oil, which comes from uh, the ethanol production process. And then there's some other smaller scale things you could use that we don't necessarily have in the US, tall oil pitch and things like that. But basically all of those feedstocks have a fat molecule in it. And we just want to break that apart because the fat molecule is three hydrocarbons. They're just stuck together in a way that's not usable for an engine. So with our hydro treating technology and other stuff, we break that apart into three pure, very stable hydrocarbons, which, you know, chemically the diesel fuel that comes out of the ground is also hydrocarbons. That's what makes us a drop in replacement. But by nature of our feedstocks, because we're not using the stuff that came from underground, which has, you know, some types of molecules you don't necessarily want in an engine, we don't have those. So we're actually making a much cleaner version of the best part of that diesel spectrum. My uh, best friend growing up, his dad converted a 1990s F-350 twin turbo, just behemoth of a truck to run off of uh, used fryer oil. And yeah, you'd, you'd hear them and then you'd smell French fries. <laughs> so I will say a cool thing about our fuel is it doesn't smell. Because uh, those molecules, we don't have those aromatic molecules. That's what makes it have that smell. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to smell it when you're putting it in, and you're not going to smell it coming out of the exhaust. So well, it, it, I'm sure your process is much better than... <laughs> no, no French fry smells here. So so there, I understand it's primarily uh, generated from a waste residue, ideally. And I under, also understand there's biodiesel, and that that's, that's separate from HVO. Can you tell me like specifically how they're different? Yeah, and this is, it's a good point we want people to understand because they're both bio-based fuels. They both come from some sort of biogenic carbon component, and they actually both use the same feedstocks as well. But there's a fork in the road at the production point, right? What technology are you going to use to break that molecule apart into the fuel components? Okay. So biodiesel, there's a process called transesterification. Um, it's a chemical reaction. The long and short of it is you get, a, you get what's close to a hydrocarbon, It's called a FAME molecule, fatty acid methyl ester. The difference is it still has oxygen on it, uh, so it's not a pure hydrocarbon. And that oxygen can affect other things like some performance properties of the fuel, storage properties, that sort of stuff. Um, Their process really doesn't have a way to remove that oxygen. Our process, uh, it's more of a petroleum refinery scale type thing, right? We're, you know, to expand our Singapore plant cost somewhere around $1.6 billion and took a few years, like this is big stuff. The hydro-treating process, um, it's going to break apart that molecule, but it's going to get rid of that oxygen as well. That's actually going to go as like a wastewater stream away from the fuel. So we're getting that really pure, stable molecule. Um, So I guess the biggest difference is they don't meet the same spec, and technically they're different because the bio has oxygen attached. They mean bio. Yes, sorry. Um, They still have that oxygen attached to it, which makes it a different molecule. So, and I know we we support customers who use biodiesel in... um, well, there, there's a shelf life issue with biodiesel. Uh, how does HVO or renewable diesel compare to traditional or fossil diesel in terms of uh, the maintenance you're going to have to put into your engine? Yeah, this is a really good point, especially for the power generation market where you may need to sit on that fuel for a bit. I guess starting at the front end, the fuel is very, very clean. So you're not gonna have to do as many changes on the fuel filters and things or bring in those external fuel polishing systems to clean it up because the fuel's not going to wanna break down. And you're saying actually then uh, easier maintenance than traditional diesel. Yeah, in in some aspects. Um, The fuel itself is very, very stable. So like if you had a a B100 biodiesel, you may get six to 12 months 
out of that before you need to start putting in these other additives and cleaning it and things because fuel breaks down it creates acids and sediments and things you don't want right um renewable diesel is because it's super stable like i said we made our first commercial batches of this in 2005 back in finland and we have some drums of it set aside in our research labs and we'll periodically test all those the above and beyond markers right that really show what's breaking down and it hasn't changed i was watching something somewhere probably youtube uh, scientists had taken a clump of tar and put it in a funnel. I've seen this. Yeah, I've seen this. It, it took like a hundred years yeah. for the drop to hit and nobody was there to see it. Yeah, so, <laughs> I, 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 I don't know why I know that, but yes, I've seen that. <laughs> I'm imagining something similar. Someone a century from now is going to draw the, uh, the HBO and like, oh, it finally changed, but we have no idea when. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is very stable. And because it is a hydrocarbon, you can run it pure, right, neat at just straight out of what you get from the tank from us. You don't have to do the blending. So like if you wanted to run a biodiesel component in your fuel, depending on the engine and applications, you're limited to either a B5 blend or a B20 blend, just capped right there. There is no 25 or 30. The spec doesn't even exist within ASTM to make those blends and the OEMs don't approve it. So the easiest way to get as much renewable content in your fuel and get as much life out of it, as much stability and everything else is to just switch wholesale over to the HVO. Called an FLA, ASTM for our listeners. Sorry, um, it, it was the American Society of Testing and Materials, but then they started doing global work, so now it just became an acronym, ASTM. But okay. the ASTM manages the D975 spec that is hydrocarbon diesel, the D6751 and the other specs that are biodiesels, like all of these fuel specs are managed by this industry group that's comprised of engine manufacturers, fuel manufacturers, fuel transporters, everyone that's part of the value stream there. Okay, we, we always tear down FLAs and TLAs for our listeners. FLAs are four-letter acronyms, TLAs are three-letter acronyms. Got it, got it. <laughs> we, we have to do that. Going, going back to sourcing a little bit, um, you know, we, we've had a number of discussions, especially in California, with regulators uh, and even legislatures on, on the power generation side. And the immediate concern that comes up is what what is the feedstock? What is the sourcing? Are are, are we talking about food crops? You know th those types of things. And I think you know what happened in, in the ethanol space. Um, I I don't see the carryover, but I think there's some education that needs to be taken there. So let's talk a little bit about some of those feedstocks. Um, I, I, my understanding is we're not we're not borrowing anything from the food chain, so to speak. This is post food uh, feedstocks. And then what is Neste doing? to uh, securitize those feedstocks long-term to make sure of consistency of, of, of your supply. Yeah, historically, you know, we, we've been wasting residue um, with the goal of being 100% wasting residue quickly. Okay, let's, um, let's break that down so just th a little bit waste. That would be those, the fats, oils, and greases, the used cooking oils, the tallows, all that sort of stuff. Okay. Um, one thing you mentioned about securing future supply, used cooking oil is kind of the, the hot button right now because there's a lot of it out there um, and it's not like the entire market is serviced as far as picking that up and bringing it back to a refiner. But you, you have to envision kind of the, the fossil industry. Say you have the Permian Basin or the Bakken Shale or these big petroleum formations, right? And you go punch a bunch of holes in the ground with your drills and then you have a giant pipeline that carries all of that from the oil field out to your refinery, say in California. That logistics stream doesn't work for renewable diesel when you're collecting like used cooking oil and stuff, right? There's no pipeline of, of animal fat. So we're talking about, you know, restaurants and things. Um, we recently, in the past couple of years, acquired companies like Mahoney Environmental Services, um, Agritrading, 
Crimson, these other guys are sequential. Basically, those combined, just for the used cooking oil market, last I heard, had something like 77,000 touch points in their markets. And that's not servicing all of the U.S. Okay. So we're we're moving, you know, trying to look years ahead to make sure we have existing um, contracts and, and supply agreements in place that we can start aggregating all of that. And we'll take it from the restaurant to, you know, a larger truck, maybe to a rail car, to a barge, and then to a ship, to a refinery that we need it. So there's companies out there doing the aggregation at the restaurant yes. level. Yes. Okay. And it, I'd, you know, that, that's a labor-intensive process. It's a lot of driving and hands-on, and it takes a lot of manpower. I'm visualizing a future where I've got my, my trash, I've got my recycling, and then I've got a jug of uh, the used cooking oils from my own kitchen that gets collected. So two things on that. One, um, yeah, there used to be no market for this stuff. When, like, when biodiesel and like your friend were doing the conversions, you could drive up to a McDonald's and they may pay you to take it away because it was a waste product. Right. There's a whole commodities market built around that now. Now there's whole companies. All they do is go buy that from you because it's worth something. Um, but as far as saving your stuff from home, every year in Finland, I think they call it the, uh, the ham trick. Um, the ham, the Thanksgiving ham is like a big thing over there. And Neste gets as many people in the country as they can to save all the fats and renderings and the stuff that come from cooking that meal. Yeah. And you can drop them off at donation locations around, around the country. And we'll take that and report back later in the year how many gallons of fuel we were able to make from the fat source directly from the citizens, which That's is pretty cool. cool. That's real cool. Then, so I just want to make sure I understand. So the, the benefit, the why behind HBO, broadly speaking, is it's better for the environment. Uh, so what comes out of the tailpipe when you're running HBO versus what comes out when you're running uh, different fuels? So, yeah, we'll talk about the big GHG picture later. Um, tailpipe emissions, because the fuel is really clean, it doesn't have those aromatics, and it's a much higher cetane number. The cetane is to diesel kind of like what octane is to gasoline. It's really a horrible comparison because they're opposite things, but um, you kind of get the point. Like, it's, a, it's your performance metric of the fuel. So you get really quick combustion, really clean combustion because you don't have these other molecules. So kind of looking at tailpipe out, or sorry, engine out. Maybe 33% less soot, less particulate matter. And so that's gonna help keep things like EGR systems cleaner. If you, have a, if you had a diesel particulate filter in the exhaust, that's gonna keep that from plugging as quickly. Um, if you don't have some sort, if you had like an older generation engine that didn't have these SCR, um, you know, NOx reducing systems in the exhaust, maybe 10 to 12% lower NOx at the tailpipe right there. You're going to have lower carbon monoxide, lower unburned hydrocarbons. Like all of those combustion byproducts are reduced because we're getting really clean combustion in the cylinder. And then to kind of the last point of that, on the front end, we mentioned the fuel doesn't have aromatics, so it doesn't have a smell. Mm-hmm. Well, if there's nothing going out on the front side, there's nothing coming out of the back side. So now we have basically aromatic-free exhaust stream. And that's the, the, the bad, that's the carcinogenic component of exhaust. So now, you know, you have an operator who's around a stationary piece of equipment, like a generator or something, that's, uh, you know, you're not breathing in that sort of stuff coming out of your engine now. Okay, so is, would it be safe to run one of these inside, for instance? I mean, you're still making carbon monoxide and things. So, okay. I, you know, you still need to vent your tailpipe to external somewhere. I wouldn't do that. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, obviously, there, there's benefits from a, from a tailpipe perspective. Utilizing HVO does, for example, is the California Air Resources Board, do they, they recognize... Uh, these benefits, and if they do, what what are they doing to uh, to you know uh, enhance uh, for you know wider spread adoption? 
Yeah, I think there's there's two ways to look at that. One is the big picture greenhouse gas emissions. Okay. Um, but then uh, the tailpipe side itself, one of the hard things is, you know, it's a huge benefit that you can switch back and forth between fossil diesel and renewable diesel day to day if you needed to, right? If you lost supply of one, you could go to the other. But that means from a regulatory standpoint, it's hard, it's kind of hard for them to to really say, we fully trust you're always going to run that renewable diesel and give the consumer a benefit. Because it's not like, if you had a, a trucking fleet and you switched to hydrogen, you were locked into that choice. You can't go back to diesel on a whim, right? So this fuel, because it is fully fungible, it, it's fully fungible in that sense. And sometimes it's frowned upon for lack of you know, guarantee that it's being done that way. Um, you know, the, the state definitely does recognize some of these reductions for sure. I mean, the, um, the, the re rule recently put in place for all California harbor craft having to run renewable diesel. The state sees the benefits of this fuel. And if you were to ask them, they may say it's just a bridge fuel to the future or something. We don't necessarily agree with that because a lot of these markets are going to be very hard to convert. Um, but even right now, they will see documents from the state saying, like, we understand the benefits that come with this. Yeah, Peterson, uh, we, we have a huge rental fleet of, uh, of compression emission engines. And uh, one of our bigger customers is Pacific Gas and Electric Company for that rental fleet. And I think back in 2019, 2020, uh, Peterson really pioneered the use of HVO in that rental fleet by uh, providing almost exclusively uh, renewable fuels uh, in the in the units we were renting to PGD. I mean, Peterson obviously, you know, we're we're committed to sustainability. We're committed to uh, you know um, reducing our carbon footprint to the fullest extent possible. And uh, as the HVO product became more widely available, we we were an early adopter of this, and we've seen really good results. And uh, I think there's some recognition in the PUC now. In, in, uh, in the, certainly in the proceedings I've been involved with, with uh, the temporary generation piece, uh, the, the Public Utilities Commission is certainly um, encouraging the use of HVO over, uh, over over conventional diesel. So I think that's a that's a, that's an exciting piece. Let, yeah. let, let me ask let me ask you this. Um, you know, with regards to um, you know the fungibility of it and the inability to track that molecule through the genset, so to speak, so the regulator doesn't know if it was fossil diesel or, or renewable diesel, um, what type of pricing differential um, do we see between HVO and, and fossil diesel? Is there incentive for the user? Um, it depends on application. Okay. And this kind of gets back to what we were saying about the PUCs and things. A lot of these regulations and rules were put in place before HVO had really hit the market. Okay. So it was really focused on the biodiesels and things. And so you know, we have a large public affairs team that's trying to get these rules changed to make everyone benefit from it. Um, <clears throat> pricing wise, it, like California specifically, if you have the low carbon fuel standard, and there's also these federal programs, part of the renewable fuel standard, and um, there's another set of credits called RENs, the value of those credits, um, we as a producer collect via those regulatory bodies, and that helps us offset our much higher production cost because our feedstocks can be two to four times more petroleum feedstocks, which is why we go into those markets, not other markets. So if you're if you have a truck fleet, you know you're going to be on parity with fossil diesel. You may have different logistics getting fleet from a terminal to your you know, to your location, which can affect things with parity generally. The hard part about power generation is because the LCFS rule set was written for transportation in California. LCFS, sorry, FLA, low carbon fuel standard. Okay, thank you. Because the low carbon fuel standard was written for transportation applications. 
a stationary backup power genset is not it, it's not transportation. And so there's the value of that credit. It has to get what's called retired, basically pulled off the market. And for any producer out there, this is not just an day, any producer out there, that's that's a bit of an opportunity cost that we're leaving on the table if we were not selling into a truck. So there's a bit of a premium there for that gallon to go on that application. And depending on mobile versus stationary and other stuff, sometimes those federal credits need to be retired as well. So you could be looking at anywhere from a 30 cent to a two plus dollar premium per gallon, depending on application and depending on where you want it. Cause like if we had the LCFS low carbon fuel standard credit in California for trucks and things, say we sold it into Arizona, still into trucks. Well, the rule is written for California. So it's still transportation, but not California. So again, we have to retire it. Um, so th- th- there could definitely be a premium to get it into the power gen applications, but because the fuel is more stable, you don't have to do as much of this polishing. You don't need additives. You know, we don't recommend putting additives in this fuel. Now you're going to cut maintenance on your, your exhaust systems, your injection systems, all these other things. A lot of that typically offsets the premium and can have even more of a benefit. And we've seen that a lot in the trucking world, um, some, with some really good data from fleets. Interesting. I heard of a case, um, I was talking to a port manager from Phoenix down to Port of Long Beach, uh, I think last year at the Catalyst Hydrogen Conference. And uh, he was telling me he had a couple of, a couple of uh, gensets, four or six gensets, and re- real life story here. Um, I don't recall the manufacturer. I certainly hope they were Caterpillar. I'm sure they were. Uh, let's just assume they, they, were. they are now. They are now, right? <laughs> But um, irrespective, um, the, the point is they were having some problems uh, meeting the new uh, air emission standards with regards to the testing. And, uh, you know, he's very vocal about it. All they did was just changed fuels. They went from fossil diesel to HVO, and they were able to pass all their air emissions tests, just as simple as, as, as changing fuel. So that is a testament to uh, tailpipe, you know, cleaner emissions, those types of things. That, I, I that doesn't surprise me. Um, I think I've seen it on other fleets, but also the white paper that you guys wrote, one of the tests in California is the smoke test, right? The opacity. Mm-hmm. And I think your white paper showed that reduced by 50%, like five zero percent That's literally an overnight change. All they did was call it, call their fuel supplier and ask for you know, the clear renewable diesel instead. And they got that benefit right away, which is pretty awesome. So, so why is it that um, there's been so much more incentive um, on-road as opposed to off-road. Is on-road just a better lobbyist? <laughs> That's a good question. You know, not being on our public affairs team, I can only speculate. I think if you look at just the consumption numbers in the state, transportation is going to be the biggest chunk of that as yeah. opposed to stationary power generation. Um, and then at the time, you know, it, it may go back just knowledge of the legislators when the rules were written. It, it could just be they didn't think about it. It could be someone lobbied against it. Um, but like I said, we have a fairly robust public affairs team. I think we have 12 something people now. Um, with, you know, some, some assigned just to the West Coast, just to California, just to interact with state legislators. Um, and we've been trying to get that ball rolling, working with OEMs like yourselves and others, um, working with the consumers, you know, the, the power gen customers, you know, these big hyperscale data center type guys. They've got a lot of lawyers too. Yeah, and th- we're all trying to get together on the same page to, to get these things changed. I appreciate that. As uh, as our good friend Scott Yappin at Caterpillar says, uh, when it comes to the regulatory arena, if, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Yep, <laughs> I, so, I'd say that's accurate. <laughs> so hope you're listening, Scott. Do a little shout out there. Um, yeah, there's a program right now in California uh, called DEBA. Uh, 
distributed emergency backup assets okay. that the California Energy Commission is running. And this is a seven to eight hundred million dollar program where they want to put uh, they want to have a new emergency backup assets to address you know uh, when we're when we're coming close to uh, you know capacity the capacity limitations in California, and they are specifically excluding diesel or a compression addition engine and those types of things. And I'm really struggling with this because when you look, um, when we talk about compression addition engines behind the meter in California, there's over 15 gigawatts of of emergency backup generators in California. And it seems to me that if you're looking to minimize, you know, environmental attributes of calling that to, and you know, the last couple summers, we're, we're, we're blessed this summer uh, with, with the wet winter we have, we have 78% more hydro in California this summer than we had last summer. So, you know, we're, we're not having those issues. But, you know, the, the previous two summers, the governor has called by executive order, he's called a state emergency where they were looking for those backup assets to run and supply power to the grid. And now that we're looking to put something permanent in place, it seems to me that fuel switching is the answer from, from a ratepayer perspective rather than spending $800 million on new assets that probably can't uh, address the use case that they're being designed for in the first place. I don't know how you dispatch solar. You know, I don't know how you dispatch a battery for you know, 10, 10 hours or 15 hours or multiple days. It seems to me that you know we're essentially throwing the baby out of the bathwater when all we need to do is change the bathwater. Yeah, and I think the liquid fuels themselves, like diesel, whether it's fossil or renewable, there's the energy density in there and the transportability of it just makes so much sense. Right, it's not a permanent solar infrastructure with batteries that have to stay there, and that you know it's not these. Uh, what does Elon call his, his the, the gig hyperscale, whatever battery centers? You can you these mo, mo, sorry the gensets are mobile. The fuel is mobile. You can take them where they're needed, put them close to where they're needed. I mean, it just it doesn't make sense to me. I, I think I'm with you, and I, I wish that we could just talk some sense to some people because you're right. If you want to get rid of all of these critical things for most of the time, and then every now and then when something goes really wrong, you want them back. That doesn't that doesn't put stability into that industry. It doesn't inspire confidence into things like that. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, for, not being from California, it's really interesting to watch, you know. But being based in Houston, we well, we have our own grid issues, I guess, also, but it's interesting to watch. Curious with uh, the, the regulatory environment, just as it is today, uh, you both shared some stories of power generation customers using HBO, what kind of segment does it make sense for, again, within power generation? Where where have you seen the successes and uh, where have you seen people try it when maybe it wasn't the best app, uh, wasn't the best fit for their application? You know, I, I don't think I could pick one out that wouldn't be a good fit. <clears throat> I think some of the, like a lot of our, a lot of the interest on our side is coming from the much larger installations, those huge data centers and things. Mm-hmm. Um, Partly because there is a fuel premium there per gallon and companies of that size, because they have their own ESG initiatives and they, they want to be green, they're willing to just make that happen. Whereas maybe a small fleet that's going to run, you know, light towers or something like that, it may not make as much sense to those guys just from an economic perspective. But I mean, the performance benefits carry from small to large. It doesn't matter, you know, if you're going 5kW or, you know, 3 megawatts or something. Um, it, the benefits cross all of those lines. Performance-wise, I, I don't know of anyone that I would say is a bad case study. I, I think we're, we touched on something interesting here, and uh, to circle back a little bit, we've talked about the difference in shelf life between biodiesel and, and HVO, but 
What, what's the shelf life of fossil diesel when we compare that to HVO? Because that, that may be a real opportunity for the big data center customers because realistically, they're just sitting there in, in a backup mode. And if, if the HVO can, you know, that doesn't need to be processed or, or you know, or, or enhanced over a long period of time, there, there may be additional economic benefits there. Yeah, so if you look at info from API, American Petroleum Institute. Call, well, call before you have to say Matt, it. you are a quick study. <laughs> I am, I am. We're going to have to have you back on this program. So API will say, you know, stored properly with what we call good housekeeping practices. Um, you know, I've, I've seen three to four years. But at some point, there are different molecules in the fossil stuff. Um, you know, there, there's double bonded hydrogens and aromatics and things, things that will break down. So it's, it's not indefinite. You're going to need some sort of additives or polishing to clean out that stuff over time. Um, it's not nearly as short as the, the pure biodiesel life, um, but it's not as long as what we've seen with renewable diesel. So it's, it's kind of a middle ground there. Um, you know, like I said, with our fuel, we, we would recommend, oh, sorry, we do not recommend additives. A lot of people will just put additives into a tank thinking they're going to provide all this benefit to them. You know, we, the fuel we make, we guarantee a CTAN number of 70. We've, there's a European fuel standard called EN15940, 15940. It's their paraffinic diesel standard. We choose that globally as our spec because it's, it's basically the best diesel spec out there. So we will always meet that. We tend to go above and beyond. Um, I, I think I've found a new market for you, which is the doomsday preppers. <laughs> you, you, tell a guy, you, you get yourself some 50-gallon drums of HVO. You bury it in the mountain. It's there for you 100 years from now. I mean, I'd, I'd love to see it. We'll do a little case study, see how long it lasts. Well, for, for clarity, we, we, we embrace all technologies. Uh, we, we don't try to pick winners. I mean, obviously, we're a Caterpillar dealership. We're a little swayed towards uh, towards reciprocating engines. But, you know, obviously, there's room for solar. Yeah. Uh, energy storage is very important, all those types of things. But, you know, one of the things we're, we're touching on here, uh, and uh, thank you for bringing up the, 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 the preppers of the doomsday, but the fact of the matter is when you're talking about energy storage or preparing for emergencies, uh, one of the best forms of energy storage has always been fuel to tank. Yeah. You want more storage to make the tank a little bigger. You know, or, 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 or gas in a pipe. You know, this is this is easy stuff here. You make so, this sound so simple. It, 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 it <laughs> can it is. be, you know, it, but it's gotten very, very complex. But, uh, you know, the fact that you can make that tank bigger right now and not have to worry about cycling out the, the, those fuels and you can do it in a environmentally responsible and sustainable way, um, I, I think is something very exciting that... Um, should be giving a little more thought and credibility. I mean, everybody's trying to get to zero tomorrow, and, and those technologies aren't there yet. And, you know, the compression ignition engine isn't getting replaced anytime soon. And this is a real opportunity for users of compression ignition engines to really green themselves up and uh, really increase themselves from a sustainability perspective. <coughs> we haven't talked much about greenhouse gases. Uh, something you just said made me write a note about that. Okay, yeah. you're taking notes. Are, are there more TLAs and FLAs involved? I will make sure to spell them out. All right, let's go. <clears throat> so one thing you just mentioned about everyone's going to zero, right? People want to get to that zero GHG emissions, so greenhouse gas emissions. <clears throat> um, when we say zero, we're talking about a carbon intensity score. And for, I guess for anyone that is not, not familiar, everything around you has a, a CI, a carbon intensity score, whether it's your shoes or your table or what, because it took energy to make that product. And that energy had its own carbon footprint. And this total carbon intensity score is just adding up all the little footprints along the way to get to that final product. So for fuel, it's sourcing your feedstocks, it's refining, it's transportation, it's the combustion, it's all of it. Um, scope one, scope two, scope three. Yeah, it's, it's all combined in there, yeah. 
So <clears throat> looking at carbon intensity scores, say for like a, a fossil diesel, the units or grams of CO2 per megajoule, don't worry about that, but think just 100, the round number there. You know, renewable diesels or HVOs, our, our best feedstocks right now, the um, used cooking oil gets us down to like 24. So we can get that up to a 75% reduction. Now moving forward, there's a whole other realm of feedstocks out there that we're looking into. One being NVO, some novel vegetable oils, where it would be a like a plant-based thing, but not a food versus fuel thing because you're looking at those cover crops used in off-season and stuff like that. And then possibly with regenerative farming, where you're helping the land and pulling more CO2 out of the atmosphere as you do these things. You know, there's research out there, I, I can't say from Neste specifically, but just in the world of getting those down to like single digits hmm. scoring, which means there's potential to possibly, if you can get more carbon captured, could you go to zero in that? If the whole goal is to go to zero, then you know, why would you legislate out liquid fuels? Like it, it's a whole can of worms there, but these fuels are much cleaner, I think, than people understand when you look at a global life cycle analysis perspective. So we basically, societally, we've earmarked fossil at 100? 100.45 in California. Okay. Yeah. And then everything is, is a reduction from there. Right. And, you know, the low carbon fuel standard, that's its entire goal, is to take that statewide average and start bringing that down by a certain percentage every year until they get to what the goal is, be equal to 2010 within a certain number of years, like kind of back solving. Yeah, so 100.45 is the, the high end, the, the fossil diesel. Every year, the companies have to be lower and lower. So it really behooves everyone to start using these HVOs and things that are 75% lower right now. Why would you not make that change now and start saving all that carbon over time, which is going to be stacking up as you just sit there and wait for something else? It certainly seems like the easy one. It is. I mean, say, say you're buying fuel from a fuel distributor, you don't even change the phone number you call. You know, you literally call the same people if it's one of our distributors, one of our channel partners, and just say, I want renewable today. So for basically, so if a current user of fossil diesel wants to switch to HVO, that, that's all they need to do? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, our, our website, um, nestemy, that's N-E-S-T-E-M-Y.com, will take you to our U.S. landing page. Okay. There's a button on top that says Find Fuel, and it's going to list out our channel partners in California and Oregon that can get it to you. Um, and you know, soon enough, Washington, as, as this grows up here. But then we also have a network of card locks, probably not the best for stationary power generation, but it's like a, a B2B commercial fueling station where drivers, you know, there's no money exchanged at the pump. They just unlock the pump of the card, fill their truck and move on about their day. Um, we've got a network of close to 30 of those now in California that we're expanding a lot. So yeah, like I said earlier in the beginning of the conversation, California, West Coast, you can get us fuel or we can get you fuel. Just give us a call. Can you repeat that link, Nate? Can we attach that link to uh, for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Repeat that link one more time. Uh, nestemy.com. Okay. Neste our product Mai. name is Nestemy. Um, people ask us what that means. It's spelled M-Y. It's uh, the brand started over in Europe, and it was uh, an intentional branding thing on their part that would imply ownership of your choice. Like it's my fuel. I'm making the choice to be green. So it doesn't really stand for anything, um, but we get that question a lot. Okay. Um. So we're talking about, uh, sorry, yeah, yeah, a question? Kind of wanted to change gears dramatically on you. You talked about Neste Mai is the, the name of your product. And I know that Neste has, uh, generates more than just diesel replacement for vehicles. Uh, you talked, uh, I, I had in my introduction, uh, I think aviation fuels. Yep. What all does Neste get into? Uh, 
what what mistakes has Neste learned? What what lessons could you maybe impart to uh, the rest of the world out there? So it's product wise. Um, and again, just for let's let's for our listeners, you you started this journey in company wide, like two thousand five. I think nineties. We we got the patents in ninety six, I believe. Okay, um, and then along the way to build. This scale of stuff you have, you know, lab scale and then small research scale. Then you start building plants. Okay, but you're, so you're, we, you are the global leader, and yeah. you have taken this journey further than any from the beginning. Yeah, so, so we so started we started producing the diesel, the renewable diesel, in 2005, I believe. Okay. Um, a few years later, we built the facilities in Singapore and Rotterdam, and then the joint venture this year in California. So, yeah, there's the there's the HVO part, the diesel. Um, and jet fuel is fairly similar to diesel, right? It's just it's a much cleaner, much lower cloud points because it's obviously very cold at 40,000 feet when you're flying your 777. Um, but yeah, we have SAF, Sustainable Aviation Fuel. <laughs> Three-letter acronym. Outstanding. Um, that's definitely an up-and-coming up business around the world because when you think about um, diesel fuel, it is needed for a lot of applications out there that aren't on-road trucking. Mm-hmm. But everyone's got their thoughts about battery and hydrogen and, and everything else. That doesn't really exist for airplanes. So <clears throat> SAF is growing like crazy. Beyond that, we also have what we call RPC, Renewable Polymers and Chemicals. So we can take the same hydrocarbons, break them down and make different molecules with them, and turn them into plastics and things. Interesting. So um, one of our big messages out there is the circular economy. You know, Taking feedstock from a, a specific company or region turning it into a product and taking it right back to that company or region. One of our most recent, I think, was a partnership with McDonald's, taking some of their waste plastic and, and other stuff and turning it back into cups made from renewable plastics. That they're going to start to ask you about food-grade plastics. <clears throat> yeah. It sounds like you're already doing that. Yeah. So those three businesses are kind of the core of our renewable business moving forward. And in Porvo, Finland, where we the first refineries were, we still do fossil production out of there because in the U.S., we're known as the renewable company, right? But we've been around since 1948 in Finland in the Nordics. So we have, you know, we've been supplying those, those countries for decades and decades. So we have a whole network of retail stations that still supply fossil gasoline and diesel and things like that. The Porvo refinery, we're doing a study right now to check feasibility basically to completely phase out all petroleum molecules there and convert it to completely renewable by the mid-2030s. So you know we're we're really really trying to move out of the petroleum space. So a good example twenty before twenty fifteen we were called Nesting Oil because we were like the Finnish national oil company for a while. Just then we slowly moved on to other stuff or you know other ownership and things. Um, twenty fifteen there's a pretty famous picture in within our our network of a big crane pulling the oil sign off the side of the building. So it just now says Neste on our headquarters. <laughs> so it, it, that doesn't show you like the commitment to. To doing this long term, I don't think much else can prove it. So yeah, so what's next? For, I mean, I understand uh, displacing diesel is a, is a heck of a task. What what comes next after that? Like, are we looking to uh, replace gasoline that would be in someone's lawnmower or car? Gasoline's a little tougher. Um, diesel's fairly straightforward. It's kind of a just a pretty narrow range of molecules. Gasoline, um, it, it's lighter. It's a blend of a lot of different stuff depending on what you need. Like. California, you guys have a very different gasoline blend and rule than the rest of the country based right. on vapor pressures and things. And we pay dearly for it. You know, we were one of the first to bring that 
Carbob, California Air Resources Board, Oxygenated Blend. That was a six-letter one for you. <clears throat> we were one of the first to actually bring that into the state. Breaking new ground here. I know. <laughs> um, and that was back in the, what, the 80s, I guess? Um, so we, like, we've been kind of the leading edge of all this stuff for a long time. But you know, moving forward, we stated one of our goals was by 2030, we want to help our customers reduce all of their carbon emissions by 20 million tons. So in 2021, we did 10.9 million. And then last year we did uh, 10, or sorry, 11.1 million. And that's without all these refinery expansions coming up. That's just process improvement on our side, getting more fuel out the door, that sort of stuff. Now we're, um, our, so we expanded our Singapore refinery, basically copy paste, double its output. That's coming online right now. The joint venture in Martinez with Marathon, it's in phase one ramping up. So that'll keep growing into next year. We've committed to expand our Rotterdam facility also, double its output. Um, I don't know the new projection, you know, 10.9, 11.1. I don't know where that's going to get us, but you know, we, we're we prepared to, to do what it takes to hit those goals. I mean, okay. So let's talk about Martinez just, just a little more because we, we've mentioned it a few times. And uh, Martinez <laughs> is right in the heart of Peterson's territory. Uh, the refinery is a good Peterson customer. I've been to it a number of times. It's changed hands a number of times yeah. over yeah. the last 15 years or so. But um, talk a little bit more about that. I understand that the joint venture uh, comes 2024. You're going to be producing about 720 million gallons. Is that correct? Um, somewhere around there. Yeah, I'd have to do the math on tons to gallons. But yeah, um, basically, it was a facility they had, um, I want to say during what, early COVID, they, they kind of closed it down for a bit. Okay. Um, I don't know who approached who, but basically there's there's an asset right there that has units, basically the hydro treater and other stuff that we need to, by, by to make way, this. If, if you've never been to this refinery, this asset, it, it's over a mile long. It's, it's big. This is a monster refinery. Yeah. yeah. The, the new units we built there look very pretty. Okay. Nice and brand new. Um, yeah, so there's already a hydro treater and stuff on site that we need. There's infrastructure. You know, there's a truck rack and other stuff needed to get the fuel to market. Um, it's close to other refineries and terminals in the area. So basically the deal was, we're going to go 50-50 on this thing. We both bring in 50% of the feedstock, we both take 50% of the output, and we're going to grow the California market by a lot. That's, that's, that's exciting. Now I understand there's another refinery in the Bay Area, um, the Philip 66 refinery in, in Rodeo that's doing something similar. Yeah, I think they, they did a conversion. I'm not sure if they're up and running or what their status is right now. I think they are producing, um, but I'm not sure what their, their output is. Um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, there's a there's some companies that are purely on the renewable side getting into this. A lot of those oil majors, though, that have to reduce their carbon obligation over time, see this as a great opportunity because maybe you know maybe their demand for these fossil fuels is dropping, especially after COVID. Right, gasoline consumption's gone down across across the world. Um, maybe it's a good time to go for those guys to convert. So you see guys like P66 and Sinclair and Poly Frontier and some of these other guys doing those conversion projects. Curious, um, you know, you guys are clearly, again, the global leader. You've been traveling this journey longer than anyone else. I assume you've got a boatload of patents. Um, how, yeah, Probably. Yeah. I don't know the number. Yeah. That's just now, smile and nod. So you have to have a boatload of patents. So how might uh, fuel from a competitor or a different supplier or different refinery differ from uh, my renewable diesel 99 or, or HVO? Good question. Um, so, yeah, we... Our technology is called NexBTL, so NEXBTL, the BTL is bio to liquid. Okay. <clears throat> so we patented that and 
Some other companies along the way have come up with their own technology, their versions of it. Um, like Honeywell UOP has, we call it a process. It's basically the entire facility, the refinery, the technology, the catalyst, the chemistry. It's, just think of it as the process. Um, we have our process that we keep internally. We, we don't license that out. It's going to be a Neste facility running that. The other companies um, like UOP or Topso, um, they, they license that out to guys like P66 and whoever. I think one of the biggest differences you'll probably see is in CloudPoint. And that has to, we didn't really get into the, the nuts and bolts of the refining, but there's hydro treating that breaks apart the molecule. And then there's isomerization, which allows you to tweak that CloudPoint and some of those performance properties. But there's, there's some trade-offs between those two because that also affects cetane number and other stuff. And it's driven by the catalyst choice and the refining. Like this is, I'm not a chemist, so it's kind of over my head here. Um, but I th I'd say the biggest difference you may see is that cloud point, that winter performance capability. Um, okay. And I will just say, just for everyone's knowledge listening, earlier I mentioned, um, you know, we don't recommend putting additives in our fuel. By nature of renewable diesels chemistry, um, cold flow improvers don't work. And that's not Neste specific, that's not these other guys specific, it's just all of renewable diesel, all of HVO, these cold flow improvers don't work. So if you don't... Just because the molecular structure is nothing to bond to? Or? Exactly. The, the molecules that those additives need are the kind of bigger, heavier chains that don't exist in HVO. Um, so basically, you're, you're, you're locked in by two things. You can either guarantee that what comes out of the refinery is what you need, or you're going to have to blend in like a number one diesel, like you would for a winter fossil, right? And at that point, though, now you're not running 100% renewable diesel, you're running some blend of other stuff. So all these other benefits we talked about, they're being cut now by that percent that you've put in of the, the fossil diesel. Um, just throwing that out there, if people ever want to put cold flow improvers into renewable, it's not, it, it, will, it literally will be a waste of money. It will sink to the bottom of the tank and not do anything. Okay. I see you guys have a uh, tremendous body of knowledge out there that you've made available to the public. And first of all, you're... Very generous with your time. You seem to be traveling all the time talking to people about the gospel of HVO, but also you guys have right on your website, it's a renewable diesel handbook. Yeah. It's uh, is, oh, like about 100 pages. 80-something pages these days. Of, yeah. of just TLAs and FLAs and uh, all kinds of information. So if you do want to know more about this, uh, you know, there, there's good resources out there. And also, you know, if you're a Peterson customer listening, talk to your representative. You know, to your sales representative, if you have questions, or your PSSR, or what have you, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll certainly help help get answers here. I think to that point, real quick, we've tried to set ourselves up as the market knowledge leaders. Like, you know, you can learn stuff anywhere. Why don't we just help it make like make it easy for people to learn it? Just because someone learns from us, they may not necessarily buy our fuel. But at the end of the day, we need to educate everyone because everyone has voting power to help those legislators do the right thing and change the rules we're talking about. Like, this all plays toward a, a, different, a bigger future than just selling a gallon. And so that's why we do all these conferences and trade shows and podcasts with you guys and articles and other stuff because we, just, we want everyone to know about this stuff. We want everyone to understand that not everything has to be electric battery in the future or hydrogen in the future. There's a lot of options. It can't, it can't be. No, it, it really can't. It's just yeah. not possible. Yeah, we're going to need everything. Right. So we, we want to educate. Everyone. I appreciate that. Nate, more questions? Yeah, I always want to know about safety. So, yeah, let's anytime, talk about safety a little bit. Thank yeah, you. It, Thank any, you for that. Anytime you compress a ton of energy into a, a compact space, there, there's safety implications there. What has Nestle learned 
about safety save uh, versus between the fossil fuel versus the HVO fuel. I know there's like transportation issues, uh, flammability, and I'll just, I'll, I'll just let you talk about safety for a little bit. You know, I think for the most part, um, we would say treat it like you would a fossil diesel. Um, you know, there's, there's memos out there from the California Water Board and these other groups that say, whether it's underground storage or transport, treat it like fossil diesel because it's still a hydrocarbon that burns in the diesel engine or combusts, right? There's a difference. Um, so a lot of those things we're going to say don't change because if you made a change specific to RD, if that were a thing, then it would make it hard to transition back to fossil and the fungibility is an issue. But one of the really cool things is Flashpoint. And Flashpoint is like, say, say your coffee cup here, we're full of diesel fuel. What temperature does it take to get that to start burning? And most people know that you could throw a match into diesel fuel and it's going to put it out. It's not going to catch on fire. Um, but not that we recommend. That. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But there's also, um, you know, the D975 set of rules has a minimum flash point, I think, of 52 degrees C. Um, if you can check my math on Fahrenheit for that. <laughs> Being European, that's not my, my forte some days. Um, or European company. So there's some, some industries out there like marine applications. IMO, so International Maritime Organization, has a group of rules called the Safety of Life at Sea Standards. Um, they have a minimum of 60 degrees C flash, which is 140 Fahrenheit. I do know that off the top of my head. Um, we, we guarantee that every day of the week. We're, right now we're delivering like 70 degrees C plus, I think I saw an 80 recently. So we, for all these markets that have those extra safety regulations, we know we can meet those any day of the week. So okay. we, have, we fuel, um, you know, in the past we fueled a lot of the ferry operations in San Francisco Bay and down in San Diego and stuff. But then as of uh, January this year, CARB required that every commercial harbor craft in the entire state has to run renewable diesel, like not a blend of anything, R99 or better. And in you know, some of their documentation, they've actually called out Neste by name and said, we know the Neste fuel meets this. And you know, may, maybe look there first. Um, so th there are some safety aspects above and beyond that we can meet. But when it comes to day-to-day -day handling, treat it like diesel. It's gonna be placarded on trucks with the same NA or UN tag as diesel and other stuff like that. Okay, thank you. Thank you. That's good. I think we're getting up on the hour. Let's, uh, let's, let's try to wrap things up here. This has been fascinating. <laughs> we could go for hours, trust yeah, me. <laughs> I think this has been a great conversation. We may even have you back based on based on listener questions and stuff like that. Nate, any, any final thoughts? I just, I'd say it sounds like if folks want to get a hold of Neste, uh, nestemy.com, which will be linked below, yep. is the right way to go. If you want to get a hold of Greg and myself, uh, send an email to podcast at petersonpower.com. We'd love to hear from you. Okay. We've, we've answered uh, customer questions uh, about... Uh, uh, renewable diesel, H HVO. Uh, I've, I've known Matt for a few years now. We've, we've talked uh, extensively about this topic and we've helped some customers out. We're happy to help you. Uh, we don't do a lot of shameless promotion on, uh, on Power Talk, but I'm going to do a little bit of shameless promotion right now. We, we are at Tacoma. Uh, Neste has uh, a couple of events going on here, so it was convenient to get together with Matt here. It's a close drive from our Hillsborough organization, but I want to thank McGavick Graves, attorneys at law. Uh, we are at their facilities in downtown Tacoma here. They've been extremely gracious in uh, letting us use their conference room, their facilities, uh, providing us with coffee. So thank you to McGavick Graves, Attorneys of Law, for uh, for the facility today. Wonderfully friendly folks. Yes, fantastic. If you're in a legal quagmire in Tacoma, please call McGavick and Graves. Uh, besides for that, Matt, any, any final thoughts as, uh, as we wrap things up here? Um, real quick on the website, I will tell you there is that handbook. We also have a lot of white papers. And there's a contact us button. So if you want to reach certain members of the team, go there as well and they'll get directed to the right place. Um, 
definitely thanks for you guys or to you guys for hosting this. I think the more engine OEMs get involved in this sort of stuff, so it's not just the fuel producers and the consumers, but you guys are, are the link between all of that. And having the knowledge of the engine manufacturers also getting the message out there carries a lot of weight. It carries a lot of weight. We get a ton of questions. Am I allowed to run this and this engine to that engine? When, an, when you guys, when an OEM says, all approved, good to go, huge. Like, can't thank you guys enough for that. I appreciate so, it. So, moving forward, if you guys want to do it again and get deeper in the weeds, you know where to find us. Outstanding. Okay. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. <laughs>